Well, good morning, church. So glad to be with you this morning. Go ahead, grab your Bibles, and open up to Ecclesiastes 8, and I'm going to read through this chapter, okay? Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This, too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun, despite all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. So, there are a ton of themes and thoughts that stand out in this chapter. But this morning, we're literally going to go verse by verse. First, Why does Solomon open up with the thought about a bright or a shiny face? Wait, what does that even mean? Like, seriously, a bright face sounds good, I think. Do you know of someone with a bright face? Or on the opposite, do you know of someone who has a hardened face? All right, so this morning, I got a couple pictures together. And I thought we'd look at them and we'd decide if they were bright or hardened. Sound good? All right. So the first one we have, Miss Jen Wood, right? That's a bright face, obviously. She's our children's ministry director. This is when you call her on Sunday morning at 8.30 and say you can't be there to serve in Sunday school. She's not messing around. All right. It's not a hardened face. We're just making some jokes here. The next one. Denise Velti, our counseling ministry director. This is when you mess with the counseling team. 
Don't mess with Denise, right? All right, our next one is Patrick Boyd. Fun, loving, great, our youth pastor. He's awesome. This is what happens when you come in to pick up your kids and they're hanging from the rafters over there. The next one is our minister of defense, Jason. I don't have a nice face because we don't want him to look nice. And then lastly, my favorite picture is of my daughter. It's when she got a gift (laughs) and she didn't want to take this picture and this is what showed up. (laughs) Probably my my favorite picture of her. It says a lot about a person's demeanor, doesn't it? We'll get back to the bright face at the end of the message. I believe it's a book and example to this chapter. Frank gave me this chapter to preach on, and um, it was hard because it's kind of all over the place. It's kind of like Proverbs. And, uh, but I believe there's a clear uh, topic laid out through this, and it's that of trust. It seems like the last few messages I've had have been related to trust in some way. I guess God is still working in my life on that. So let's go to verses 2 to 5. 2 to 5 really talk and walk through respecting the power of civil authorities. Okay, let's be real. In this day and age, that is not easy. I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on, there are some really dumb things done and said on both sides and in the middle. (laughs) Why? Because it's people. This is not a political sermon, it's not going to be, but these verses do touch on respecting that power. So whether you sit in this room and you can't stand to be under the leadership of President Trump, or you've had an issue in the past because you've been under the leadership of Obama, we are to respect the power they hold. Okay, I'm not saying that you need to agree or get on board with unbiblical policy or practices. No, We're called to be under submission to God first and foremost. But like this verse says, since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Okay, I'm sure you're asking, how does this have anything to do with trust? What are you talking about, Mark? How does respecting rulers or civil leaders have to do with trust? Who placed those rulers into their position? Who allowed evil rulers to be in a position? If sin led to a ruler coming to power, who allowed that? God. At the end of the day, God is in control. Even in the evil rulers, God knows what's happening. In fact, he knows all decisions, all rulers of all times. I think what this verse is reminding us is that wisdom is respecting your civil rulers. Why? Because God is in control. Guess what? He's in control even if you don't understand it. Donald Trump or Obama's presidency are just a mere blip in the grand scheme of God's time and plan. As we move on, verse 6 goes on to proclaim, There is a proper time and procedure for every matter though a person may be weighed down by misery. This verse always stands out to me because wisdom brings the understanding or judgment to a situation. But the reality is that's just one side of the equation. There is also a proper timing. 
So if you know you need to deal with something, pray and ask God what to do, but also ask when to do it. A great biblical example of this is found in the story of Esther. So let me sum up the story of Esther. Esther is a Jewish lady who becomes the king's wife because his first wife, Vashti, isn't willing to come to a party and display her beauty. Yeah, you heard that right. She's not the queen anymore because she didn't want to go to a party. Yikes. So what a better way to find your next wife than to hold a beauty pageant, said no one ever. (laughs) Holy biblical soap opera happening, right? So Esther hides the fact that she's Jewish and she joins the pageant and the king is taken with her and makes her his wife and king, queen. So the story goes on and there's a new character named Mordecai and it's Esther's close um, Jewish friend and he hears of a plot to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king and thus the king's life is saved. Mordecai is now celebrated. And if that wasn't crazy enough, the soap opera continues with the introduction of a new character, Haman, who um, is the king's highest leader in the land. So the king demands that everyone should bow to Haman. Mordecai won't do it. So, like any rational person, Haman demands that Mordecai and all the Jewish people should be murdered on a specific day. What is going on, right? Now remember, Esther is Jewish, but the king doesn't know this. Seems like God might have a plan in store. So Esther and Mordecai plan on how to change this decree. And part of this is that Esther needs to tell the king that she is a Jew. And she has a very famous line in the story. It says, if I die, I die. But see, Here is where the timing of of her action comes into play. Esther decides to host Haman and the king at a banquet that's going to last a few days. She decides that she will make the special request and tell the king that she is a Jew at the second day of the banquet. So she has their attention on the first night, and she doesn't tell them. Why? I have no idea, but it wasn't the right timing. Okay, so the story continues. In the king's drunkenness that night, he goes home after the first night, and he can't sleep. So what does a king do when he can't sleep? He gets the royal scribe to come in and read the long, boring history to him of the king's reign, right? So in that, the scribe starts reading, and lo and behold, he reads the the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And that changes the whole story right there. Because now the king wakes up and demands that Haman march Mordecai through the streets and praise him. He's told by the king to exalt Mordecai around the town because of his past actions. So now Esther holds the second night of the banquet, and she tells the king and Haman that not only will Mordecai be killed tomorrow, but, oh, she's a Jew, and she will be killed too if the king does not stop the decree. So in a crazy turn of events, the death of the Jews is changed not only because of the act that Esther stops the crazy plot, but because she does it in God's timing. God was able to play out events that led to the culmination of correct timing and trust on Esther's part to speak at the right time. 
Esther was the exclamation point to the story God unfolded. I'm sure there's examples in your life as well when you knew what you needed to do, but maybe you did it in the wrong timing and it didn't work out. It takes trust to have patience when all you want to do is act. Ask God for not only the wisdom to what needs to be done, but ask him for the timing of when it needs to be done. All right, we're going to keep going. Verses 7 and 8 say, Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? And no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. Wisdom says that no matter how much you think you know, you really know very little. Even if we had all of the world's wisdom, we would know very little. No one can fully comprehend God. Look, at the end of the day, you don't know the day or the time of your death. It could be today. It could be 40 years from now. You have no clue. But be reminded, God does know these things. I heard a speaker, in fact, it's one of my favorite speakers, Louis Giglio, and he said in a message that we were at this past week, who in this room has had a plan for their life that has all happened exactly as you dreamt it or thought it through? Yeah, right? Not going to happen. <laughs> Trust in the fact that God holds the plan in his hands. He holds your plan. He holds everyone's plan. There are things we will never know, so let go and let God control. How stupid are we that we would try and fight a plan that you have no say in or control over? All right, we now go to verses 10 through 14. These verses are really talking about the fact that life isn't fair, that injustice happens that we live in a sinful world. Listen to verse 14. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. That verse is so profound. The righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked can get what the righteous deserve. Man, that's unfair. That's so not cool. That's injustice. Why is Solomon saying this? Well, there's a few reasons. First one, it's true. We've all seen this in our lifetimes. The wicked prosper and the righteous can get trampled on. I think these verses point out to us a, a few truths. First, life is unfair. Injustice is real in the world. Bad stuff happens to good people and good stuff can happen to bad people. Stop living life in a way that is surprised when that happens. It's going to happen. It's happening. It could even be happening to you right now. Second, remember the bigger picture. Your life, a bad person's life, is a blip in God's story. You are not God. The final judgment does not come from you. It comes from God. Yes, there may be evil men who live this life with all sorts of good things happening to them. In fact, they may even die never knowing of their evil deeds. But God is the final judgment. Justice comes through Jesus, not you. And these verses also remind us that it's God's proper time for justice, not your timing. 
Do you trust God in his plan? Do you trust God when you don't understand the circumstances? Do you trust God when the evil are prospering and the good are struggling? Do you trust God when it seems like the evil win? Do you trust God if the evil is not stopped in your timing or in a way that you get to witness it? Those are some hard questions, right? I would love to say yes to all of those questions with no issues in my heart whatsoever, but I can't. My bet is you probably can't either. Why? Because we're human. Why? Because there's a degree of evil in our own hearts. Why? Because we want to control the outcome and the timing. Why? Because we want to play God. Ouch. That hurts. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I'm better at this than others. Like, let's be real. It's so much easier to trust God when it's not directly affecting you. But man, when it's directly affecting you, impacting your day-to-day, your surroundings, do we really trust God? I think it's key here to say that if you trust God, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Do you trust him when it hurts? And now, in a dramatic turn in the verses, Solomon proclaims this in verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in all their toil, all the days of their life God has given them under the sun. Okay, out of nowhere, Solomon goes rogue and says, I commend you to enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry. What? Right? It just kind of comes out of nowhere. Where is this coming from? Why is this here? All of this chapter is leading up to this verse, is telling us what wisdom looks like. We talked about them all. Wisdom is respecting the power of civil authorities. Wisdom has a proper time and procedure of events. Wisdom is understanding that we will never know it all. Wisdom is understanding that justice comes through Jesus. Solomon is saying wisdom looks like these things. And he's saying the key to all of these wisdom bullet points is first, trusting God. Trusting God comes from surrender. You can't trust him until you've submitted and surrendered your heart, soul, and mind to him. Trust starts with surrender. When you surrender, there's freedom, a peace that you can have. You can drink, laugh, and be glad because you've acknowledged that God is in control, that you're not that you trust him no matter the circumstances or the situations or the outcomes. When you surrender and trust God, you have the freedom to be joyful. The reality is you can't control it anyways. So surrender. Let go and let God. The reality is you really don't have control. So stop acting and living like you do. It's causing you more pain if you just surrendered and chose to trust God in your life. 
So you're saying, God, I'm going to trust you in my hard situations. God, I'm going to trust you in my medical state. God, I'm going to trust you in the cancer diagnosis. God, I'm going to trust you in this ridiculously hard divorce. God, I'm going to trust you in my bad work situations. God, I'm going to trust you in my finances. God, I'm going to trust you with those relationships. You know the ones you just want to walk away from, but you know you're not supposed to? I know there's probably something in your head right now. You could all fill in the blank on this issue right now. In fact, grab your bulletins out, take a minute, and write the answer in your bulletin to this question. God, I'm going to trust you in blank. This morning, um, I want you to hear from somebody who's had life kick her over and over again. Uh, Someone who's walked a road that is out of her control, and yet it has led her to a place of wanting to give God more and more trust. I'll be honest, I'm biased to this story. It's my wife. (laughs) Um, But it's an amazing story, so I want you to hear from Lisa this morning. Hello. Sometimes my husband says, I have an idea, and then I find myself hiking at Catoctin. Sometimes he says, hey babe, let's go to Deep Creek for the weekend. And we head off on a quick adventure to visit his parents. Then sometimes he says things like, I have an idea. How about you share some of your testimony in my sermon this Sunday? So here I am. My journey to faith in Jesus began as a young girl. My grandmother would take me to church with her, and I'm thankful for this exposure since my upbringing had its full share of difficulties. I came into this world when my mom was 16 and my dad had just turned 18 the month before I was born. According to my recollection, my early years were spent bouncing around with my mom and living with Grandma Kellogg and visiting Grandma Betty on the weekends. This was all while my mom worked hard at her sobriety. My dad was often unavailable and frequently incarcerated. Life felt unstable and the idea of trust was a tough concept for me to wrap my mind around. I have found that the instability that came from my upbringing made me long for the security that trusting in Jesus promised to bring. Faith in Jesus as my Savior was an invitation that I could not pass by when it was presented to me in middle school. After I navigated my way through high school and came out on the other side, I found myself at a turning point. This is when I surrendered myself and placed my faith and trust in Jesus and gave my life completely to him. Throughout my adult life, I've often found myself in a position where I ask the almighty God of the universe questions from my extremely distorted view and perspective. My conversations often begin with, God, you could have, fill in the blank, but you didn't, and they can be coded with complaint. Then God reminds me of who he is and how he promises to work things together for good. Romans 8.28 tells me that we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I would like to share some of my intimate conversations with you. God, you could have kept my childhood guarded against all the darkness that I was exposed to and the hurt I experienced growing up. Navigating the world with separated parents that were also addicts and the unstable life this brought about was extremely difficult. I had countless nights where I cried myself to sleep, missing my parents. But God surely showed up when he provided family members to step in on my behalf, when he provided sobriety for my mom, when he rescued me from the depth of my own sin, and when he gave me a heart to minister to children day in and day out. 
I even get opportunities to advocate for children with educational and emotional needs, and I'm thankful to fight for their best interests. This I know. The God who works these difficult things together for good can be trusted. God, you could have allowed the first seven years of our marriage to look very different than they did in reality. The arguing, the tears, the doubts, the hours spent in counseling, and the fears were incredibly intense. But again, by your amazing grace, we just celebrated 18 years of marriage, and the first seven have become but a glimpse in the rearview mirror. We're closer than I ever could have imagined was possible, especially with the way our marriage started off, and despite the detours we took along the way. We are far from perfect, but we have a commitment to outserve each other. And I have to add that Mark is extremely gifted in this area. I learn from him each day. I'm thankful God chose to bring our lives together. This I know. The God who works these relational struggles together for good can be trusted. God, you could have allowed my mom to keep my youngest baby sister rather than putting her up for adoption. But your amazing grace would have been a distant reality in the lives of my family members as we watched your incredible restoration plan unfold right before our eyes. Just 12 years ago, when we were reunited with Leah and her incredible family, they welcomed us with open arms and they generously continue to share their daughter with us on holidays and special occasions. Today, my sister and I are members of the same church. Our husbands lead worship together here and I get the privilege of hugging my nieces and nephews each week in this very sanctuary. God certainly wrote this script long before either of us were born. I am beyond blessed and truly grateful. This I know, the God who works these intricate details together for good can be trusted. As I reflect on my life, I recognize that some of my story is too difficult to share or too complicated to sum up in a 10-minute testimony. I'm going to do the best I can with this next piece. The unthinkable happened in 2016 when one of my three nephews was accidentally killed. The circumstances surrounding this difficult day may never be fully exposed. One nephew is in the arms of Jesus. One nephew was reunited with his mother just two months ago. And one nephew is in juvenile detention in West Virginia. While I absolutely hate that my sister has to walk this journey, I'm thankful she's chosen to cling to Jesus in her most painful days. This will most certainly remain a you could have, but you didn't conversation with God. And it's one that hurts to the depths of my soul, even to this day. One that I pray through on a daily basis, especially since God seemed to have said no when my husband and I tried to get custody of two of the boys just two years prior to the accident. At that time, a dear friend and her husband were willing to take my third nephew into their care, but the judge would not split the boys up or move them from West Virginia to Maryland. Instead, they were placed into the care of their father, and here we are today. I often find myself poring over scripture when I'm aching with my sister, our family, and her boys, and missing my incredible nephew, Colby. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 to 18 brings great comfort when I read, Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love reading this same passage in the message. 
and then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. I do know that Colby is in a better place as he had placed his faith in Jesus and then continued to attend church on his own when he moved back to West Virginia. He had a ministry within his local church that was similar to Youth for Christ and offered him a ride to attend. Thank you, Lord. I cannot wait for our glorious reunion and worshiping Jesus together forever. To say I have survivor's guilt would be an understatement. I often wrestle with the reality that I was not the sibling put up for adoption, that I was not the sibling to lose her son at the young age of 10, and that I'm not the sibling trying to rebuild my life after such unthinkable trauma. While I'm ever grateful for the many ways the Lord stepped in all throughout my life and went before the details of my faith journey, my survivor's guilt is a real struggle. This is something I have to surrender to the Lord often. My heart mimics the psalmist in Psalm 62, 2 to 3. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Satan intended the death of Jesus as the ultimate evil, but God used it for good. God defeated death once and for all, and the stone was rolled away, and Jesus came forth restored to life. What a mighty resurrection day. While I long to see the good that will come from my nephew's death, I know God can be trusted, and he will be faithful to work it together for good. Please do not hear me say, woe is me. Rather, wow, God has worked many pieces of her story together for good, and she trusts him to do the same with the unfinished, unsettled, and incomplete portions of her story. The reality is, whether you're on a mountaintop or in a deep valley, whether you're in a season of rejoicing or a season of mourning, no matter which side is up, you have divine access to the great rescuer. I know I need this reminder each and every day. We all need rescuing. I need it in my day-to-day -day life, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my ministry, and in my relationships. Isaiah 26, 3-4 reads, You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because the Lord, the Lord himself, is an everlasting rock. This I know, Jesus is trustworthy. You can't make that story up, right? In fact, I would venture to say there's not many writers who could create a movie script that intense. But God was and is in control. Lisa's circumstances do not surprise God. Your circumstances and surroundings don't surprise God. Listen to these last verses. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all the efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. God is big. We are not. Basically stated, God, I'm going to surrender so I can trust you. And remember that first verse, the bright face verse? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. 
I don't know about you, but I want to have a brighter face. I don't want to look hard. My beautiful wife has every right to have a hardened face. She has every right to be negative. But God. She surrenders day by day, and what happens? You see Jesus in her face. We don't want to appear calloused, hard, controlling, negative, down, ugly, critical. The list goes on. I want people to see Jesus in me. And although life around me may stink sometimes, you can choose to trust God. And in that trust comes peace and even joy. Yes, joy. Why? Jesus. I want the brightness of Jesus, which brings wisdom all throughout me. And how does that happen? Surrender. And trust Jesus, which leads to wisdom. I'm going to take it one step farther for us Christians. If you're sitting around and you're constantly trying to figure out what to trust, who to trust, when to trust, why to trust, I would venture to say you're not living. Your life is riddled with fear, anxiety, and trouble. God has a plan for you. God has a specific desire for you. But if you're preoccupied in control, you're missing the plan God has for you. You've believed the lie of the enemy that he's not worth our trust. No, he is. What else do you need God to do for you? Jesus died for you. I hope as we walk through these verses, um, you could see the action it calls us to. It tells us of wisdom. He asks us to trust. But ultimately, it all starts out with surrender. Why surrender? Because it brings freedom. Surrender, by definition, is to hand over control or abandon oneself completely. I'm not saying we should abandon ourselves to nothing. No, we're abandoning or handing our control to Jesus, the God who knows all, who holds all in his hands, the great God who parted the seas, who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who saved the Jews in that story of Esther we talked about, who has a plan for you, who wants to use you for his glory. Maybe there's something that has you captive today. Maybe it's a sin in your life. Maybe it's a thought pattern. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's the unknown. Surrender is handing that over to the control of God. And practically speaking, I can't answer what surrender looks like in your specific circumstance. Maybe for you it's obedience. Maybe it's letting go of the outcome. For me, surrender is daily, moment by moment, declaration in my life that God is in control and I am not. It's an active surrender. It needs to be consistent. To surrender, you're saying, cancer diagnosis? No, Jesus. Habitual sin? 
No. Jesus. Work issue? No. Jesus. Death? No. Jesus. Anxiety? No. Jesus. Control? No. Jesus. Divorce? Nope. Jesus. Fear? No. Jesus. Look, I'm messed up. I'm a broken person, and the truth is, so are you. Lisa and I are broken people. We're all broken. You have sin and messes all around you, and so do we. Some I create in my own sin, some that are forced upon me, but the bottom line is we're a mess. God is not. He's perfect. He loves you. He sent his son to die in our place so that we may live. Yes, eternally live, but also live today to carry out the individual purpose God has placed on you to carry his name from here to the nations. So do you want to carry his name to all who you encounter by word and even maybe a bright face? Then surrender and do it again and again. Again. Surrender. Again, again, wisdom comes from trust, which starts in surrender. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, not easy to talk about these things because I am not good at it. <laughs> I'm not good at surrendering to you when I need to. Um, my guess is there are many in this room that aren't either. And so this morning, I just pray that as we've heard your word, that the Spirit would move and that we would realize and surrender to you. And Lord, if there's someone in this room who's never surrendered to you for the first time in their life, I pray that today would be the day that they would know that Jesus died and rose again for them. Lord, thank you for today. Use this for your kingdom, God. And may we surrender to you again and again and again. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.